Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya. Parathe wali gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome author and food writer, Nikki Segnant. In this episode, we'll talk to Nikki about how lateral cooking can improve your kitchen skills, why practice shouldn't make perfect, and we'll hear Nikki's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, in our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia once said, no one is born a great cook, one learns by doing, and do she did. Few people, especially non-professional chefs, have thrown themselves into learning all they can about cooking. Julia was so obsessed with the how and the why and all the variations on themes that she drove poor Simca Beck, her co-author on Mastering the Art of French Cooking, crazy with questions. I can imagine Julia asking Simca, Simca yet again, Pourquoi? And I can see Simka's face switch from quizzical to finite, answering, say ça, because it is that way, Julia. Julia was the kind of person who really wanted to understand food deeply. Moreover, she felt her own curiosity might be of use to other people. People like her, who were, as she put it, tremendously interested in food, but not necessarily naturals in the kitchen. Lucky for the world, Julia turned out to be a great communicator in print, on screen, and in person. She had the gift of the gab. Someone else with Julia's passionate curiosity and the same desire to share it is award-winning author Nikki Segnant. Like Julia, Nikki has the ability to look at the way cooking is typically taught and approach it differently. To ask questions, to flaunt convention, and attempt to thoroughly and clearly communicate that re-examination to a hungry audience. No easy feat. It took Julia and Simka about nine years and they were only covering French food. A former food marketer turned author, Nikki's latest book, Lateral Cooking, One Dish Leads to Another, 
covers a gamut of global cuisine linkages, among many other cooking relationships. First published in the fall of 2018 in the UK, and out now in an American edition, it follows her multi-award-winning first book, The Flavor Thesaurus, which has sold more than 250,000 hardback copies and translated into more than 12 languages. Nikki's here today to take us through the concept of lateral cooking. Welcome to the podcast, Nikki. So what on earth drove you to embark on the exhaustive research to help us understand the relationship of basically all the dishes in the world? <laughs> well, I would love to say, well, one day I was sitting down thinking, oh, I wonder how all the dishes in the world connect up. Um, uh, that would have been that would have been a brilliant thought, but it wasn't <laughs> where it started. Actually, where it, this, this started quite... Um, uh, it's quite a modest project, actually. I think I just I was finishing up writing the Flavor Thesaurus, which took three years to research and write, and I thought that um, uh, I had my next book planned because when I was writing the Flavor Thesaurus and I was having to test lots of different flavor combinations, it turned out what I really needed was a book of uh, what I think of as skeleton recipes with guidance about how to take those basic preparations. So let's say a risotto, a cake, an ice cream, um, a pancake batter, how to take those things and flavor them in lots of different ways. Um, and that book hadn't, uh, I, as far as I can see, it had not been written. So um, I just started to keep this set of notes, just noting down loads and loads and loads of different recipes for that particular preparation. And then my own flavor experiments and then actually some practical considerations like oh do you need that many eggs what if you change the sugar all those kind of things and it was really towards the end of the flavor thesaurus I started to think well you know what I'm using these notes so much um, and they're full of stuff that you can't get anywhere not even online so I'm I'm going to broaden it out and I'm going to turn it into a book about flavoring different things <laughs> well you know that was, and I that is kind of how I worked on it for a few years. But um, what happened was huge amounts of research, and the more I got into it, the more I started to, if you like, read recipes and analyze recipes, the the ingredients, the quantities, the methods, and compare them. Then it's then it started to shape shift and become this slightly bigger thing because. You know, if, if my purpose was to help other people flavor different preparations and become slightly more loose limbed in the kitchen and able to kind of start making things up. With with as I started to get more into it, the ambition grew, which was, well, what if we started to say, what if you to write a book where you didn't need the book at all after one? It, it was actually written with that. Um, endpoint in mind so that started to take the book in a different direction and then I started to see patterns in recipes and it started to broaden out if you like so you know as I'm writing about something like frangipan um, which is uh, ground nuts butter sugar and eggs in metric that's all the same weight uh, then whenever I saw a recipe that was like that, then I would start collecting it into that group. Oh, that what that one's like frangipan, except it's made with with walnuts, or that's that, or that's um, oh, that's frangipan, but it's rolled into vine leaves, or it's being used in puff paste. So just seeing all these things and uh, and starting to make this enormous. I mean, I'd say sometimes a genealogy of food.
was this book sort of birthed in in tandem with the work you were doing on Flavor Thesaurus, or did you finish Flavor Thesaurus and then start working on lateral cooking? No, I finished. Uh, the notes were, you know, so I was using these notes to help me do the recipe testing for Flavor Thesaurus. And then I had, but I had decided by the time I finished the paper, sorry, sorry, I'm going to just get straight on with this because it's so interesting. And I still had, you know, I was a bit exhausted after the flavor of the source, but I still, I just had the, you know, the wind beneath my wings. I was so interested in that subject, thought the book would be really useful. Um, and then, um, no, I just, I didn't think, but it seemed like a very... It seemed more contained. Perhaps. It seemed a very contained, very sort of quite sensible. But the flavor of the Zorus, in a way, it's sort of sensible, but it's kind of not. It's also quite a quirky, eccentric book in its way. It took a lot of poking around in dark corners to find the information for the flavor of the Zorus. No one's ever really written a book for, not even really for the flavor industry that's as that comprehensive about flavor. So this one was going to be the kind of like the lighter, easier kind of, you know, just knock it out in a couple of years. And it, and it took you how long? It took eight years. Eight years. <laughs> it took eight years, but it became, you know, obviously it became something. I mean, this subject you could write, it could go on for for many more yeah. years. And I do think if I'd sat down to say, OK, what about if we try to make this family tree, this genealogy of food from all over the world, then I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how long that might, that might have taken. That might have taken, you know, 20 years. And what was the pitch to the publisher? Did you say, I, I just need eight years to do this book? Or were they incredibly patient? Because they thought uh, it had such... Well, um, I do have the most brilliant commissioning editor who, um, who has got a rather it takes as long as it takes attitude, actually, as long as it's great. Um so, yeah, I think they, yeah, I think it's very much kind of whatever it takes. I mean, I didn't show anybody at all for three years, so I was a bit nervous when I did eventually show somebody in case they said, you know, this is bongos or this is, oh, no, I'm not very interested in that. I mean, it would just be terrible. Well, it, it, I have to say, it's quite an extraordinary book because it's so comprehensive and you make all these linkages and it's really unlike... As you, which is quite extraordinary too, because there's so many cookbooks and books on cooking, and you think there can't possibly be a gap where someone's never written about this before, but they are there. So I thought it'd be great if you take us through. The book is really based on these continuums. Take us through one, and I'm not sure if frangipan is one, but I always have watching the Great British Bake Off be reminded because they're always talking about frangipan and that laddering up when you go from you know almonds to ground almonds to almond flour. Could you do that one? Because I think that's re people can get their heads around it. Like, what's the difference between frangipan, marzipan, and a macaroon? Or yeah, so uh, it's one of my favorites actually. Is the nut continuum. So we're, we start with marzipan or almond paste, uh, and in an uh, American quantity, you take two cups of ground almonds and one cup of sugar, and then you take those two dry ingredients and you bring them together with as little egg white as you need to, in order to make a dough. Now that's the most uh, that's at it at its most basic but that is a marzipan if you put a bit of almond essence into it it will taste like marzipan uh, and you can do all sorts of things with that and you can make it in all sorts of ways uh, you can make it with peanuts in a mexican way and you know you can make it in pistachios if you've got that kind of money blah 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 <laughs> then we're going to take one step along the continuum and instead of using just enough egg white to bring together a dough we're going to use uh, about an egg for every, I don't know, we, we've got two cups of ground almonds and one cup of sugar. Let's say we take two egg whites, whisk them up so they're nice and frothy with the sugar, and then add the ground almonds. And then you can shape those into little balls, um, 
maybe pop a, a lovely almond on the top of each of them and bake them. And there you have what we call macaroons, not macarons, as the, yeah. not those kind of fancy French ones. Yeah. They take a bit more work. Yeah. But uh, just a lovely, simple almond biscuit. Now, there are loads of different variations of that. And so uh, as we go through the book, we also stop to say, actually, if you make these with hazelnut and a bit of cocoa, then that's a kind of particular Tuscan biscuit. And you could do it this way. You can do it. With, um, if you do it with coconut, you might want to leave the egg yolk in because they need a bit more moisture. So you get, so that's step two. The third point along the continuum is uh, for a cake that um, is called torta Santiago and you'll see this everywhere if you if you ever go to the north uh, west of Spain you see this cake everywhere uh, you can sell it you can see it because it has a, a St James cross reversed out of icing sugar on the top it's very beautiful sometimes it comes in a tart case sometimes it just comes as a cake it's a very simple delicious cake and you can serve it cut into um, little triangles with some um, nice creme fraiche now if we move on to the next point along the continuum, and we use two cups of ground almonds, a cup of sugar, three eggs, say, and then a cup of butter, then you make frangipan. And frangipan is used in so many different ways. So each of the starting points along the continuum has a little picture section at the end that just shows you lots of different places that you might use this stuff where I, have, that I might not have mentioned in the text so far. So particularly if you have a bit left over, then there's all sorts of things that you can do to, to play around. And then we take slightly bigger jump on the continuum because we're going to move into something savoury. But we're going to keep the same amount of nuts, but we're going to replace the sugar with something like a cup of uh, roasted vegetables and some olive oil. And we're going to mix it together and we're going to make all sorts of sauces. So if you think about, there's loads and loads of nut-based sauces. I mean, the starting point in the book is tarator, and that's walnuts and oil and dill and um, olive oil. Did I always say that? Yeah. Uh, so then you make these kind of very thick sauces that sometimes you can then turn into a soup by adding some nice stock or with tarotor adding cold yogurt and where does that come from what part of the world uh is that would be from eastern europe okay so oh. uh, all sorts of different versions you'll find that in you know it all around the kind of eastern block okay um and also uh, that kind of thing starts to uh go south as well so you find all different versions in turkey for example so uh, Tarator is also a name in Turkey for uh, a sauce that is just sesame and lemon. Mm. So uh, when you see that particular starting point, it really goes in lots of different directions in terms of flavor. But really, you're, you're doing the same thing as you're doing all the way along the continuum, which is taking nuts, if you like, as a, a nice, soft, creamy base and then adding different flavoring components to them and some fat. But here we're talking about using some olive oil and mm. emulsifying it, really. That sounds a lot more complicated than it is. And then the final place uh, point on the nuts continuum are any number of really fantastic um, stews made with nut sauces. So the example that I use for the starting point is fezanjan, which is uh, either, you know, is traditionally pheasant or duck or chicken cooked in a sauce made with um, pomegranate juice as the stock, if you like, and then thickened with walnuts. Mm -hmm. I'm using the same quantities usually as we go along. So if you're interested in kind of getting to the point where you don't need recipes, it's just all fairly standardized along the points. 
that way of making a stew, always really delicious, by the way, they're all fantastic, is used all over the world. So we have in Africa, we have something called marfe, which is made with tomatoes as the stock and peanuts as the thickener. And anything might go in there, any kind of meat, all sorts of fish, but also, you know, just a vegetarian, vegan version using, you know, chunky vegetables like sweet potatoes. And then uh, korma, the beautiful Indian dish that's often made with chicken. So you're just taking almonds, maybe a bit of cashew, a bit of coconut, all sorts of combinations are used there. Lots of um, exotic spicing. Uh, There are, yeah, there are just many, many different versions. There are South American versions that use condensed milk as the stock, you know. So you, yes, there are, there's one starting point given as an example, and there's probably about seven, somewhere between seven and ten different variations, but mind-boggling. But they're all part, of the, you know, every single one of those is part of the same family, and the method of creating them is similar. And maybe it's a good um, time to sort of shift, because it's related to the continuum. The book is also organized in, a, to me, a very different way than you typically see with cookbooks. Usually cookbooks are either by course or by type of food. And yours is, as you started to allude to, kind of in these cooking products, if you will. And so maybe could you take us to, maybe through in describing how it's organized, like why you did it that way and, and how that relates to this, you know, philosophy that you were discovering. It's even more than a, it's a fundamental, I guess, of world food, more than just a philosophy. Yeah, because because what guides a book like this, something as new as this, is the ultimate usage of it. Uh, I don't think that lateral cooking is the book that you sit down to plan a three-course meal to give for your friends. You know, it's not, it's not a, oh, let's have a dinner party book. This is a book about, this is a book that's main point is helping you learn to cook by heart, helping you learn to do stuff more flexibly. And so it makes sense. It just makes so much more sense to say, okay, let's have a look at, um, let's look at the custard continuum. Do you know there are only two things in all of the things on on this continuum, which is custard tarts, which by the way includes pumpkin pie, cheesecake, quiche, you know, they're all one family. So yeah, people don't always think that those things because they're they're not yellow still are custard based with additions, right? Exactly. But the principle that guides making them is exactly the same. And if you're making a crustless quiche, you know, it's still all that matters really is how many eggs do I need to set this, and then also uh, don't cook it too hot. So once you once you've learned those two things, everything on the custard continuum shouldn't go wrong. And that goes into um, if you like. Uh, uh, creme caramel and all the international versions of that creme brulee um, pouring custard ice cream uh, creme patissiere or pastry cream uh, and then crema frita all of those things it makes so much more sense to me to put those things together to put them in a spectrum of how one changes into another so for example creme anglaise pouring custard which we make quite a lot here to put in our um, stodgy desserts, uh, is exactly the same as the base for any ice cream, except it has less sugar in it. And the ice cream has more sugar in it in order to perform, form the correct size ice crystal. So it needs, it, it's not uh, just a, you know, a taste thing, it's actually a science thing. So actually, if you're making your pouring custard, then make some extra and make up an ice cream. 
you know, with some cream cheese in it. Try it with some olive oil in it. Try, you know, there are a million things you can do. So the person, the cook that I'm talking to is someone who's going to dig those practicalities, who's going to find like, oh, if I'm making this, I'm going to double up and try something else of my interest. And so my int- what I'm doing is I'm creating a tool for people who are playing around, fiddling, experimenting, who are cooking for practical reasons as well. But that's really interesting. I, I don't think I need to add to the pile of dinner party recipes. No, wonderful recipes. They're just, you know, you can't walk down the road without someone hitting you over the head with a recipe. This book is, the I think, the first book to try and do something different, like join it up, make you a better cook, make you more confident, get you to try things, say, do you know a panettone is really just a bread and a cake mix mixed together? Go do it. It's really, you know, because it's fun. And... Um, so I think you could safely say this is a book for curious home cooks who really want to either up their game because they, they have a, a set capacity, but they maybe don't understand the relationships as well as they would like to, or for someone who's slightly baffled by it, who this kind of approach, I don't know if you're, Samin Nosrat wrote this book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and one of the things she's always, it's not so much in the book, well, it's probably in the book, is she was like, no one told me about these relationships. They helped me understand everything. And a lot of professional chefs have probably not born this way, but from the training they've had, they've had an indirect exposure to the the repetition and all of that. So they've internalized it, but they don't intellectualize it. And it's not how they approached it. But your, was that your goal in providing particularly home cooks a, a different way to garner that training and confidence or, or, or no, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's just, it's me, the writer, talking to me, the keen amateur cook mainly but uh, obviously with the flavor of the saurus i kind of thought i I think there's a interest in this beyond just amateur cooks because no one's i think if no one's written that book before and there's a lot of thought and some interesting opinions and lots of stuff in there that no one's ever pointed out to you before wherever you're coming from on the spectrum of uh talent if you're a newbie or if you're someone who's been doing it for 40 years you're going to be interested in it I wasn't so sure whether how how lateral cooking would play in that way but some of it seems to me that most of the people that have told me how much they really love it are cooking teachers and you think well that's really that's the last person because because you would think they come to cooking like we know everything right understanding yeah and I think there's just that whole joining things up just yeah who has the time to think about that well you know Fortunately, Apparently I did. You yeah. Did. <laughs> well, you know, I you know, I took it on as a project, and I did think about it. And I think, yeah, you, you're not necessarily going to notice all these things, or necessarily have such, you know, to say, well, his dull. But did you know? Also, there's this Ethiopian version. Like it's it, it, that that kind of stuff is not what most people are walking around with in their head because no, yeah, no one has the time. So well, that's what I was saying. It's interesting because you've pointed out things that I think people who do teach cooking or, or, or cook professionally, they have learned an entirely different way through simple, not explaining those relationships, but by learning basic route ways of doing things that they, you then do through repetition. And through repetition, um, they've they've internalized these relationships, but it, it, it's through a totally different process. And it's also through that process of that, you know, you know, if you give 10 people the same exact recipe, they will not produce identical dishes. They might produce an identifiably similar dish with a similar taste, and but you've given them the same recipe. And I think that's because of 
the intuitive compensations you need for weather conditions or whether you might have actually put too much sugar in or your eggs were slightly bigger, right? And these are all the things that is one of your goals in writing this book to help cooks know how to fiddle with, right? Not, not, not just understand the relationship. So I was trying to point out that there's, there's almost these two amazing things coming together in your book. One is to teach people to cook more intuitively and how to get there. And then the other is the global relationships. And they're kind of like two entirely separate tasks going on at the same time. There's even more to it than that. It's a very, very layered, quite complex thing. I mean, it doesn't look obviously. And when you look, open it up, it looks like a. It just looks like a book. Um, but I mean, there's the there's another thing which I find quite interesting about natural cooking, which is the leeways it, given in each start point that says, "Oh, do you need that many eggs? What if I haven't got the? What if I've only got brown sugar? Can I swap this for that? Can I? Do I need to use gluten free, or can I use gluten free? And all that kind of thing. Those things are all tackled for each of the start points as well because. Uh, I like them. I'm interested in them. I, I think it's a nice way of also giving people some space to to change things up or make them much more, you know, make things much more um, to their own taste. But um, they also uh, so they give you know they give you a whole lot of other options. And well, I feel like the leeways are are that tool to show you how within certain parameters you can monkey with stuff to get other results but then also i think one of the things you really encourage people it's not so much playing with your food but to be adventurous with with the leeway so that you then by experimenting learn the learn the relationships and also learn the limits of you know there are some things you can monkey with and there are some you know ratios as you said it's, it's all actually chemistry that will just not work if you if you ultimately put too many eggs in your I think, yeah, if you use too many leeways. I mean, just say, it doesn't say, like, yeah, don't, don't take all the egg. Sometimes you can take all the egg out of things. I try, you know, try and give people an understanding. It's almost like giving them a giving them the recipe in 3D so they can turn it around in their heads and start thinking about how did they want to make it. And I'm very clear about this in the introduction. You know, sometimes uh, things aren't going to work out and sometimes things don't go right first time because... You know, when you're developing a dish or you're making your own version of something, it's going to take a few goes. The first time you cook anything, it's always a practice run. But I think one of the things with the professionals as well, people who are of a different level, that I always find quite interesting is by putting these different preparations on continuums, then the geeky people, the people who are super curious, are going to start thinking, well, what happens between these two places? What if I what if I stopped halfway between? Um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of a good example. What if I stop? Well, I mean, lots of people now make creme caramel in a very creme brulee-ish way. Mm. So you know, creme caramel always used to be made with milk and whole eggs. It had a texture that you know was much more rubbery, but much more you know it would show the spoon. Um, mark as it went into mm-hmm. it. it would make a certain kind of sound as you go more to more flan. Yeah, exactly. Or it is. Yeah. So you know, a much a, a much more um, a, lo- a much more less luxurious thing than a creme yeah, brulee. Yeah, more set than yeah. creamy. Yeah. But now a lot of chefs use um, all all cream and all yolks, and so they're actually making a creme brulee that they can turn out. You just put a little bit more yolk in it so that it's actually got enough strength to hold its own weight. Uh, 
that kind you know there's a whole load of things to explore like that I think it's like what do you if you're looking at things on a continuum you can start monkeying around I like that expression in that in that way of like taking things so if you look at the bread continuum we eat a lot of bun like things here in the UK um, and a bun is in between a bread and a brioche and in fact in France a bun is called a poor man's brioche so as you as you look at the continuums there's always that question of like well what about some of the gaps what are you know what are what what could I make in this space all right, we're going to come back to explore more of those gaps and talk more lateral cooking with Nikki Signet in a minute. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala. Welcome back. We're talking to award-winning food writer Nikki Segnet about her latest book and her philosophy of lateral cooking. So I was interested in, um, because I work with and I'm related to the food writer Anne Willen, who's written very comprehensive uh, encyclopedias on food at times, one which in America is called Lava and Practique, which is really a rebranding of an originally British book called the Reader's Digest Encyclopedia of Cookery. And lateral cooking is very comprehensive, but kind of in a totally different way. And so I, I thought, I know you know that book. It's referenced in the bibliography as a resource. How, how, how would you compare and contrast? Because people might, that book sold very well. A lot of people have it as their kind of go-to reference. How would you compare and contrast lateral cooking to a book like that? Uh, I have it. I have to say, when I was making my notes, it's one of my first go-tos. I love it. I love, uh, mine is a Reader's Digest, and it's one of the first 
It's probably the first like Bible of cooking that I bought. Uh, so compare and contrast. I feel like I should be writing this and handing it in. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you, you can re- you can re- no, frame, frame the question however you want. <laughs> I'll just try not to take eight years. No, I think it's lovely because it really made me think about. Um, I hadn't thought about it before, but um, obviously with the first, there are two things. Two big things, and one is content and one is style. So we start with the style because it's really interesting to me that um, if you write a book like that, that's, um, you know, uh, an encyclopedia of cooking, it's going to, it really is very comprehensive. Um, but the register is, is pupil, uh, sorry, master to pupil. And so it is, it's very firm. It's quite dispassionate in a way. I mean, if you read most of them, they don't tend to the, the the author or the group of authors don't tend to get too enthusiastic about um, the process of cooking. If you like, it's, it's less anecdotal too. It doesn't have. It, I mean, there are no personal, exactly. Yeah. There's no personal stuff. When I was stuff. traveling with my husband and had a picnic, then we took out the pomegranate. Exactly. I mean, so that's the uh, so just the you know what is expected of someone writing those books is it's it's serious and it's um, yeah, as I say it's authoritative and it's clear and uh, and the flavor of the sauce and latter cooking don't take that position uh, fortunately because firstly I probably wouldn't enjoy writing it very much but I uh, you know I I got into this because I wanted to write more than anything and um and so, I, and I'm not a trained chef, and I'm not somebody who's been doing it for so long that I can just, you know, that I, certainly when I started lateral cooking, that I could just pick up a pan and make anything and teach you to make it. I'm a, so I, my register is peer to peer. I I love cooking, and I'm talking to people who love cooking. I n- I just never ever think or, that I have to persuade the person that I'm writing to uh to get into the kitchen you know try cooking it's not that's not it i'm talking to the convert i'm preaching to the converted Mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not even preaching i'm chatting Mm -hmm. and laughing and probably having a glass of wine Mm -hmm. with the converted Mm -hmm. and it's very much that and that means i can uh go off and uh anecdotalize and I can say, I mean, of course, if you're, you're making an encyclopedia of cooking, then you have to include everything, including the stuff that you don't like. <laughs> I do. I, I, lateral cooking doesn't include anything. It's big and it includes lots and lots of things. And it will keep you very, very busy for a few years, I think. But it, <laughs> but it doesn't include everything. So, you know, there's no this, it, there's no compositions like salads or, you know, those big roasting tray things that are very popular or um, Buddha bowls, stuff like that. I, I don't cover that because it is kind of, it's sort of cooking. Mm. So most of the stuff that I'm talking about is putting lots of ingredients in a bowl and doing stuff. It's, it's, it's more, uh, there's more technique going on there in kind of like rather than sort of arranging and peeling and arranging ingredients. So it's not comprehensive. Um, so it's... Well, it's comprehensive in a very different way, but it's not comprehensive in that you're trying to cover every base. You were right looking at these discoveries and relationships and where they sort of held, and and you're you're also looking at the fundamentals of things that are bases of all different kinds of ways to cook dishes, whether it's a stew, whether it's pastry, whether it's bread. Yeah, I mean, we're prob- yes. So it probably covers 
a vast amount of uh, the culinary territory, but not all of it. It's not, nor does it try to. And it's not, it's not a book that's trying to push any kind of fashion. It's not, it's not, it's not trendy. Well, and there's not a goal to list every kind of fruit that exists that you could possibly eat. It, you, you've only included the fruit that's relevant to the continuums and relationships that yeah. you were exploring, right? I mean, it's fairly, it's classic. And I suppose where the reach comes, where the interest in like new and different things are things that are classic in other countries that you might not have come across. It doesn't tend to be. And there's, there's some stuff that I've created myself that I think, oh, this is really nice and I'm going to include it because it's sort of not something available somewhere else. But so in terms of its content, it's it's pretty different. It's, you know, it's... Uh, it's very opinionated. Yeah, you have, I would say stylistically, it's a bit like, not sort of her later books, but her groundbreaking book, How to Eat, Nigella Lawson, which she really is speaking to you, as you say, as a peer and telling anecdotes. And you have a lot of, I don't know if they're highly personal, but personal stories of you approach. So it's very readable in a way that maybe an encyclopedic book, as you said, that's meant to be authoritative is, is different. Yeah, I think um, that is also part of the plan. So also, if you're going to be telling people new stuff, um, we live in a world where not everyone has a huge amount of time to sort of sit down and really concentrate on big, you know, big wadges of text. So, you know, lateral cooking, like flavor source, is broken out into small pieces. Like, very, it's very digestible. You can just kind of, you can open it up, start reading, or oh, just read a little bit here about, you know, how to make a chocolate and sets one pepper brioche maybe. And then actually before you know it, you've read the whole of the section and you've moved on to the next one and the stuff like that because everything's broken down into, you know, cookie-sized si- <laughs> cookie uh, paragraphs that make it a little bit easier to get lost in it, take it on board and learn stuff by, you know, by stealth, hopefully, and... Um, in that chatty way, as I say, not, not. So I think we touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to hear more from you about it. So Julia was very big on two things. One is not being afraid to make mistakes because you're never going to learn anything if you are. And also on never apologizing for, for your mistakes. So, and and you, you definitely cover this in the book and, and I've alluded to it, but I wanted to talk to you more about your, your approach and your advice about, you know, essentially self-forgiveness in the kitchen. I'm very good at it <laughs> because I've had a lot of practice. Okay, so with the cooking practice comes the practice because it's just, it is completely part of being a cook. And um, I think certainly here in the UK, and I feel, I might be wrong, but I feel perhaps increasingly in the States with um, cookbooks being so much one color picture and one recipe. And these pictures are extraordinary because it's become so much cheaper to produce those books Mm. then there's just so many of them and I think they have such a cumulative effect on how people feel about what they produce I mean I cook all the time and what I make does not not ever all, look all like Instagram the picture worthy. no and it isn't well, I do do Instagram but I it's all, I, again I call you it all, it's organic <laughs> it's like that's what I've this is what I've made in fact the other day on the other day I made a um, the famous plum tart from the New York Times yeah. do you know that recipe yeah. 
Well, apparently, you know, so it was, you know, just beginning of the plum season. Um, my husband had been nagging for an apple cake. So I thought, of course, you can't completely give him what he wants. So I'll just <laughs> make, him a, make him a plum cake instead. I really want to try this famous plum cake. Well, I did, I made it and I put it in the oven and a friend came around and we went and sat in the garden. It was a nice, one of the last nice summer days. And, um, and then my husband came into the garden maybe about, an hour and a half later and said oh the cooker timer went off about half an hour ago was it anything <laughs> important <laughs> yeah so and I thought you know what I'm going to put it on Instagram because that's that is you know life happens that, while you're that, cooking that, is that what John Lennon said life's what's happened what when you're making like? something was burn. it hopelessly burned or was it just a bit overdone well the shocking thing was Todd is that it it was pretty bad. You can have a look at an Instagram. It okay, was, yeah, okay. I mean, this was not going to be presented at even a dinner party of close friends. But the family managed to finish off. I mean, the burn, <laughs> it was, still it was pretty burnt, but it went. Um, isn't that funny? It still tasted like a good homemade cake. Then I made it again um, a, a couple of days later and I didn't burn it. And I put that one up on Instagram. I'm sure that the burnt one didn't taste slightly better or maybe it was Caramelization just... Caramelization. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of... So um, my wife was always complains about having been fed leftovers when she was a small child. And so there's a dish in our family called burnt beans, which is essentially green beans that have been already cooked in butter and from the night before that you then recook in more butter and basically burn them. And they're delicious because it's a highly caramelized yeah. kind of thing. But again, it wouldn't look great on Instagram because you actually the more charcoaly they look, the better they actually taste. But if you haven't tried burnt beans, I haven't. But I do. I I am collecting. This is one of many stories that I hear from people of like things that their mum used to do that were like, you know, ways of not throwing stuff away that might have these days been thrown away. And it's so it's kind of charming. Burnt beans. It sounds in you know. If you said it in French, <laughs> it would be great, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, haricot vert. Um, no, but the French, I think they wouldn't call it burnt. They would give it some, you know. Um, haricot, haricot vert noir. Yeah, something. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So we actually, I wanted to ask you this other question because which we were just starting to touch upon, and given that you said you're writing for this peer-to-peer -peer audience. I really struggle with the explosion of interest in food and cooking, which I think is fantastic. It's what the foundation is aiming for and is lovely. But then you do start to worry about the translation of, is it really producing more interest in actual cooking and more cooks at home in particular? Or is it just producing more people photographing their food in restaurants? And do you, being that you're a writer and observer of of these things, what have you been founding or what is your gut telling you as you your books have come out and been really well received? I remember when I, when I was pitching the Flavor Thesaurus, which was a very painful process with many, many rejections. Um, one of the things that I had done was in my marketing job, I had access to this enormous database and I could run a, a, a crosstab of questions. People who really loved cooking and people who said they were creative people. It's just in this country. Uh, and it was two million. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's fine. I'll settle for two million sales. That's not a bad book. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe some of them live together, so 1.5 million. Even but, if you got 50%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I was quite surprised that there was that high because then, you know, that's both, that's people agreeing with the extreme. 
I would be fascinated to go back and see whether that's changed. I think without the numbers, I feel unsure about making any kind of guess on that because the thing is, is I don't know. I think certainly I we heard like, oh, people just watch food TV and they don't really cook. I don't think that's true. I think, you know, I think there are quite a lot of people who like cooking. I think one of the things that's changed certainly since I was a young girl, is that there are a lot of guys that cook. When I do talks, it's a lot of men come along. I think they particularly like this approach of like giving... It's a geekier... It's not full of pretty pictures. I suppose it's giving... It's a handbook, isn't it? It's like, Mm. here's some guidance to like go off and do your own thing. And I think that's uh, that's quite appealing. Um, What I do... I suppose what I... there There are more concerns that I have about social media and food that not so much about whether people are doing or whether they're just looking i mean it's a strange thing to me to just want to look at lots and lots of pictures of food (laughs) you you know but then i do it all day so perhaps you know perhaps if i didn't if i was back in my normal job i would want to do it more i suppose i'm slightly more concerned about um creating expectations in this in the same way that um uh glossy cookbooks do that you know a lot if 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 it's overstyled and people think that that's what everyone's churning out, I think that's not so great. And you don't see perhaps enough brown splodge. <laughs> you know, some of the most delicious food is not very beautiful. Mm. I mean, I really love bean stews and, and mm, I really love dals and they're, they're ugly. They're not very photogenic. No, they're, they're not very photogenic. So I don't, I don't photograph a lot of the stuff that I make because I eat a lot of, yeah, a lot of unphotogenic stuff and I'm not going to fuss around with it before I serve it up. But I suppose... I also think that the I get a little bit more if you want something I get grumpy about it's the nomenclature mm. like people calling things things that they're not mm. so uh, there's a calling certain, a creme caramel a creme brulee when it's not or vice versa I or think that that I might even forgive that a little yeah. bit although I would mm, I would <laughs> yes. actually uh, I might not bother to go and incorrect I think more things like calling things panzanella that don't have tomatoes or bread in them <laughs> or, I'm serious. It's, it's really like the I, you know, this. The, what would that be? A corn and lima bean panzanella, which is really succotash. Yeah, what? exactly. I mean, just like things getting to the point where they drift. That the people that are writing about it don't know or don't care about what the actual thing is, and that slightly worries me because it's, I suppose it's a bit like fake news, fake not you know fake recipe naming, so that we lose the idea of what something is. I mean, it's different to say. This is inspired pie, but this is my start point for this was panzanella. But instead of the bread, I use this, and instead of the tomatoes, I use this. And what I ended up with is this. And I think there's so much of it. And in fact, I'm judging a food book prize this year, and it's leaked into the publishing as well. So there are some books that are just claiming that their dishes are something which they're absolutely not. And I'm, I really hate that. And I think that's a shame to kind of lose the, the, you know, what things are. It's sort of speaking to what I think this dialectic that Julia often talked about, which is improvising in the kitchen is great, but you have to know what you're doing first. And that sometimes people put the improvising before the, the, the base knowledge. And I think that's a lot of, again, to bring it back to lateral cooking, what you're trying to show is there, it's, improvising is fantastic, and, but you need to have some understanding of these linkages and continuums to do it with any kind of effectiveness or authority. Even. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it is definitely comes back to the music analogy. Like you have to learn to play the notes before you go off and improvise yeah exactly you know you know uh if you obviously if you read lateral cooking from cover to cover you will become miles davis (laughs) (laughs) well on that note let us know if you've already been practicing your own lateral cooking 
And also, what are some of your favorite twists on transforming one dish into another? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at joyachildfoundation.org and let us know. After the break, Nikki's going to reveal her Joya moment. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Nikki, what's your Julia moment? Well, I wish I had met Julia. I think we would have got on like a house on fire. I agree, I agree. Um, well, and as you probably know, here in the UK, Julia is not someone that we really grew up with. That is such a shame, isn't it? Because, <laughs> well, I think, let me talk about the absence of Julia. Yeah, when yeah, I, I think when I... I didn't get into cooking. My mum cooked everything from scratch, but I didn't learn from her. I was not interested by the time I left home. Uh, and then when I did come back to it and start to watch the people who are making the kind of teach you to cook shows, they're quite serious. And um, I don't know if it ever that kind of thing ever really spoke to me. Um, and when I see and read about Julia... What I see is somebody who reflects exactly how I've come to feel about food. And I wonder whether, and cooking, and whether she would have gotten me there a bit. F- that joy, that absolute, um, the playfulness. So uh, I think somebody once wrote that the thing that you didn't see on the page, but something that she brought to every recipe was she always added some fun. Mm. And it's... Uh, Given, I mean, this is a country here where we laugh about everything. We joke about terrible things, but we don't joke about food and we don't joke about cooking. And I have a feeling it's because we don't take it seriously that everyone kind of pretends, like puts on serious face. Mm-hmm. But it is fun. I mean, the reason that most kids want to cook is because it's messy play. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's fun and they don't care whether things go wrong. And you just get stuck in and, yes... Uh, uh, it's just it's just great and at the end of it you're probably going to sit down and have a meal with people or a breakfast with people or a brunch with people maybe open a you know, bottle of something it's just the most wonderful thing and I think she embodies everything that I have come to love about cooking and food plus a belief in the work that you you know th- that what she did the effort that goes into it the exhaustion and the exhaustiveness of the work that goes into it even if it takes a bit longer in order to get to somewhere really special I completely you know I would I would have been her disciple for sure I just absolutely though those and you, you can have those two things together great fun playfulness a sense of um high spirits going into it but also the backbone is Serious stuff, properly tested, really thought about, really well researched, you know, um, and then handed over as a, you know, what could be a more terrific pairing than those two things. And uh, I guess there aren't many people who've managed that. Well, and you couldn't have 
said it better than the way we say it exactly that that you know we see jewelry is this marriage between education and fun and uh that that's wonderful thank you very much thank you very much for having me it's a pleasure and um thanks everyone else for listening the book again is lateral cooking one dish leads to another by nikki segnant with a forward by yoda Ottolenghi, published by bloomsbury look for it ask for it at your favorite book selling source nikki's first book the Flavor Thesaurus was also published by Bloomsbury. There are a lot of B's and P's in there. To keep up with Nikki's latest discoveries, you can see what she's talking about on this program on her social media feed. She's at Nikki Segnant on Instagram and at Real Nikki Segnant on Twitter. And it's Nikki N-I-K-I and Segnant is S-E-G-N-I-T. For further inspiration and in- encouragement in the kitchen, Follow us at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.